0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Alex Tabor. I'm a history PhD candidate at Carnegie Mellon University. Today, I'm meeting with Drs. Mae Hara and Anna Lee Good, authors of Teachers as Policy Advocates, Strategies for Collaboration and Change, to discuss their important and timely work for New Books Network. The New Books Network was established by Marshall Poe in 2007. It's the largest book-focused podcast network in the world and reaches around 1 million people every month. Almost 800 hosts produce freely accessible author interview podcasts on over 100 subject-specific channels. Before we dive in, let me share a brief note about what background and experiences sparked my interest in talking to you about this work uh, and ask you both to share a few words about your current positions. Personally, I... I am coming from a place of having student taught high school civics and U.S. history courses uh, prior to completing graduate training in history. It was during my graduate training in history that I expanded educational work to include supporting English language learners and underserved teens in college bridge programs. My current doctoral dissertation uh, and the research that that involves marks a waypoint in my early career phases here as an educator and policy engaged professional and it reflects current work that I do as a research consultant for county government and as an adult educator working with different incarcerated learners. Could I ask you both to take this opportunity to just briefly introduce yourselves, highlight your different institutional affiliations and and relevant background experiences?
1: Sure. (laughs) My name is Mayhara Hara, and I'm an associate professor of education at Framingham State University in Massachusetts, which is also the first public institution in the U.S. to prepare teachers. Um, and I uh, teach courses in uh, working with multilingual learners and educational policy, and I am a former middle school English teacher.
2: My name is Annalee Good, and I'm at the Wisconsin Center for Education Research, which is in the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, and there I do research and evaluation and policy work with lots of different um, groups of people in the K-12 education space, including teachers, which is just really one of, one of the favorite parts of my job. Um, and I was an eighth grade social studies teacher before going to graduate school and getting my doctorate in education policy. Um, and I am also a parent of two school aged, um, kids in the system here in Madison. Um, and feel like I continue every day to grow and figure out like all these different hats as it relates to education. So I'm really excited to be a part of this conversation.
0: Thank you both. So I'm sure it's undoubtable because of the the very book that we're talking about, but um, my experiences, much like yours uh, in educational settings, have exposed me to different ways that both explicit and informal policies shape and emerge from practices in different ranging academic and professional settings. Um, Also, the ways that opportunities for practitioners or professionals um, to innovatively affect changes Uh, a change to those policies through different types of advocacy and engagement and innovation. Um, But in these different settings, it's been ubiquitously clear that there are barriers and obstacles to effective advocacy and organizing that range from accessing information in the first place to um, actualizing it and and operationalizing it in different ways. Uh, But your book is organized specifically to address this area of need in some really helpful and fascinating ways avoiding diving into the the whole table of contents uh just as a bird's eye view for listeners uh, there are two kind of framing chapters one that offers some tips on how to engage with the book and how to use the book and another chapter in the conclusion or at the end the fifth chapter that kind of provides a some models for using the different information and guidance provided throughout the book. Uh, But four chapters largely discuss policies pertinent to a few different areas in the educational setting, one being school safety and discipline, another being assessment policies, a third being public health related to COVID-19 or especially in the time of COVID-19, and lastly related to digital learning. How did you two find each other on this specific topic? What inspirations or influences or what motivations, um, you know, drove you guys to produce this work and to choose these areas of policy?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. I appreciate that question. Um, I mean, May and I met each other the first day of graduate school, and we both, I think, connected right away for lots of different reasons, including that we were both less than three months away from having been a middle school teacher. And, you know, I think that in our, a lot of our early conversations, um, it was really grounded in that we had just been been out of the classroom. Um, and, and that also we had, we had chosen this program, right? We had chosen education policy. So clearly we were already leaning into those types of conversations because then in, you know, in classes. And I think that one of the things that graduate school does for you is to um, help you to see how things are not isolated and unique usually when it comes to schooling and that, you know, may having taught in very different geographic spaces and, and um, even pedagogic spaces, then I had, like we were probably seeing a lot of similarities and then you're, you're, you know, learning about a research base and a theoretical framework and then other people's experiences where you're like, Oh, wait a minute, you know, the systems and the structures become very apparent in these conversations. So I I think that um, that's how we found each other. Um, and then as we have had you know our paths, our, our scholarly and personal and professional paths, um, those conversations have continued. And I think that um, you know we both work with teachers in different ways now, and yet those a lot of those you know same concept as, as we tried to kind of bring out in the book, like here are these, these policy experiences or these, these contexts that the policy context itself can be different, but here are these experiences that the teachers have. Obviously context really, really matters. Um, but here are some things that we're learning across these different contexts. And, um, and then I, I think we continue to stay connected through just like our, Commitment and like love of working with practicing teachers. Like, that is just, I think we probably both miss being classroom teachers too. (laughs) So, that gives us an opportunity to stay connected in a way.
1: Agreed. And the only thing that I'll add or amplify is that the specific policy areas focused on in the book emerged from the data that teachers provided us. Uh, So, the policies that they felt were most impactful are the ones around which we built the chapters.
0: Love that. Thank you for clarifying that. It kind of, I guess, personalizes your responses to my next question. Um, I was wondering while reading this book and thinking about these specific areas of policy, um, whether there were other issues or topics that you either individually or both wrestled with and considered including when selecting these. you know. It's, so you you just kind of let me know that these very much came from the bottom up. And I think that adds all the more value to this book. But I wondered, were there other topics that you would have wanted to include or others perhaps that you intentionally bypassed because they would have been too much or too complex or too fluid for a text like this?
1: I think that one of the themes that we absolutely want to pursue further as a policy area is around uh, school and district policy regarding critical race theory. Um, The time period of data collection spanned multiple years and so we were able to see uh, all of this unfold and it's still unfolding. Uh, which is probably one of the reasons why we did not select it as um, as one of the chapters in this book. I think there's lots of room for exploration questions that we have for teachers on how they're making sense of policy, how they're experiencing it, how they are involved in advocacy or making policy on the ground. These are all questions that I'm really interested in and, and definitely uh, lots of... Early and emerging data around this policy area that came up in conversation that I think we'd like to pursue moving forward.
2: Yeah, it, it it changes over time, right? So, like the right now, the moment that we're finding ourselves in in that policy context of of CRT is, you know, book banning, like literally book banning, and what does that look like? when it's a school board, or what does it look like when it's a state legislature, and that those are different policy layers that then teachers interact with differently, too. And I, I think what I'm looking forward to is how we also will, how our research design will react and respond to, you know, then what we, so here's a topic that came up out of it, you know, came up out of the data, continues to come up out of the data, and then how will we want to shift our design or, or no, adapt our design or research design moving forward towards that question and towards that, that policy issue too.
0: Thank you so much. Could you both describe to me in greater detail what your favorite high leverage strategy from the book looks like, perhaps using an example from your own experiences?
2: Sure. And if I've learned anything from having multiple children you're not supposed to choose a favorite so um <laughs> um i'm not going to choose a favorite i'm just going to highlight one and then may feel free obviously love it love it
0: love it a
2: different one but um and i don't have a favorite child by the way i just want to say that in case they someday listen to this <laughs> um i love ed camps so uh ed camps are one of the high leverage strategies that we describe and you know there's capital e ed camp like it's a thing you can um, look it up. And it's, you know, there's a ed camp foundation and, but there's also the EdCamp camp type of professional learning experience too. So w- when we say ed camp, it doesn't need to like officially be an ed camp. It's just a space where it's really teacher driven um, and that there isn't necessarily an agenda coming in. It's very much um, built from who's there and what they're interested in talking about. And it's based on the premise that teachers have expertise Um, there's never a keynote that's invited. Or if there is, it's like, they're not driving the sessions. It's, you know, it's it's teachers driving these sessions. Um, I, whenever we go, I always feel energized. And, um, and then the experience of, you know, the educators around us too. And we've learned a lot. Like I, I, what I love about it is that people vote with their feet. And so if you've proposed a session that is not interesting and not relevant to teachers, they don't show up and there's no expectation that they're going to show up. And then you get feedback very soon and then you change it. And we did. And now, you know, we're much better about like, how do we propose sessions that actually, you know, are useful <laughs> to teachers and that they want to show up to. So that's, that's that type of professional learning and reflection. Cause that's like kind of at the core of our model in the book Ed camps are a really good illustration of spaces where it's it's about learning and about collective reflection.
1: Uh, I'll focus on another strategy, which are the kind of uh, collaborative reflection dyads, and the reason I think that there's a lot of potential here is because they involve multiple partners. There is the pre-service teacher, there's the supervising practitioner who's a practicing teacher, and then there's usually, if not always, a faculty representative from a teacher education program. And I like this strategy that's built around long-term conversation about policy because it's grounded in the field placement, which means that the conversations are happening around things that are actually unfolding in the classroom, in the school or district uh, that's specific to the dyad, but also because baked into it is this expectation that these conversations involve more than one party and that people are going to bring different perspectives, but also different loci of power to any policy conversation. So the pre-service teacher is going to feel one way and have questions. The practicing teacher is going to potentially feel another way, have other questions, but also maybe have a little bit more agency. And then the person who's representing the teacher education program has a third perspective. A third set of levers that they may or may not be able to pull and I like that it brings everybody together around policies that are relevant uh, to brainstorm to share ideas and that also that this process happens over the course of a semester or potentially even a year.
0: Thank you both for just taking a second to expand on these I couldn't help but spend, I guess like every other page had me reflecting on my own student teaching experience and like, uh, how that in some ways did prepare and in other ways did not prepare me for things that I would go on to experience in other places. And I both, um, I found the ed camp to be like revolutionarily decentralized, uh, it, unlike any other professional learning community or professional development or kind of continuing education training I've ever participated in. I was like, I, I just couldn't help but uh, imagine what more productive and meaningful topics we could find ourselves engaging on uh, compared to some of the ones that are more traditional. Um, and at the same time, I, I couldn't help but think about what new information or, or important things having a, a more, Meaningful mentorship program, whether that be in a, a dyad form or, or an, even anything comparable, how much you know value that would have added, um, or or that would have maybe helped me learn things that I had to otherwise learn in like kind of difficult on the on the fly ways in the classroom.
2: I think I think one of the things I've like learned from May's experience too, as like directing teacher education programs, like t- as, as a teacher educator is like it is revolutionary to think about mentorship in the way of policy engagement and policy advocacy like that's not new when we think about mentoring from like an instructional sense or how do you develop a curriculum that's going to be you know like responsive and relevant and rigorous and all these things but like how do you structure mentorship around the idea of policy advocacy and then that requires a certain capacity in the mentor teacher that we don't do a very good job of providing you know training around and so how do you you know how do you actually be a mentor if you're also you know of course learning and growing and, and engaging and like that's what i liked about what May built in terms of like the collaborative is that there's also expertise that the that the um pre-service teachers coming in with it like there's kind of this like multi-directional mentorship happening
0: it definitely is just in this moment making me think about the way that even just being a grad student puts you in a a comparable position you know a a slightly like later on pre-service teacher you know you're both a a high level student but you're expected to be a teacher in some capacities and the multiple hats you know Uh, and regardless thank you both for you know adding more about these specific strategies. Each of your chapters points to a different policy area of opportunity for improving or changing existing practices in classrooms and schools or relationships between teachers, administrators, or, you know, communities surrounding our educational systems. In which of these areas do you think there's the most, uh, opportunity for action for current teachers as policy advocates?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think depending on what layer, like what level of policy we're thinking about, um, my answer would change. So I think one of the things that was really interesting that came out of the data um, in the context of the public health and COVID chapter, but it also overlapped into the digital tools chapter, obviously, because those two were really, um, really intertwined, uh, especially the past couple of years, but I think something that's really interesting that came out that teachers felt like in the context of COVID, they understood how much of a policymaker they were because they were not only like adapting and making policy as they were implementing stuff, but they were literally making policies like kind of on the fly on a day-to-day basis, sometimes in their own classroom, sometimes on, the, on their own school level. Um, and I think that that there's some residual like I think that that's another potential future like research areas that like think about what's the residual of that now where teachers can't unlearn that they can't unexperience or feel that that they were making it and that they did it and that they, they actually that was really complex context for them to be making policies in the middle of so but that's very localized like that wasn't going to happen at the state level and to a certain extent on the district level and so I think that there are you know, thinking about um, public safety, you know, and and I know May will have th- something to say about this, but like the active shooter policies, that's district, state, national, right? And so that that's one space I think that teachers also are feeling more and more and more kind of energized, but also like, look, no one is better expert than I am about what this looks like in my classroom. So I don't know if May you feel like that policy in particular might have more of an opportunity for like the upstream policy levels?
1: Yeah, this is a fascinating question. I I'm, i don't want to be too flip in giving an answer, but there's there's two things that are coming to mind. The first is absolutely the galvanizing effect of making policy as a result of the COVID pandemic um, for teachers is, I agree with Annalie, teachers cannot unknow that they they have this, power. Um, The other thing that went along with that is the narrative of this policy cannot change. We have always done things this way. It must always be this way. What could we even imagine? That has been chipped away because we did do things differently, things that we thought could never be different about education out of necessity, had to be reimagined, and so we have this kind of object lesson. You know, there's like in the fact that we can do things differently. Now, that part of my thinking is bumping up against the something that came out of the data, which is particularly um, teachers or pre-service teachers who have come up in a, in a generational time where school shootings. Uh, have been common, they expressed this feeling that that was not going to change. That in their lifetime, it has always been the case that school responses to school shootings would be things like lockdown drills or locked doors or bag checks, as opposed to, for example, advocacy on a state or district level towards gun control. right? Not that those things aren't happening, but that teachers saw much more that the response was going to be, we're going to lock our doors, we're going to check bags, etc. So I guess my wondering, listening to you, Annalie, and you, Alex, is the question of, is there transferability between this idea that, yes, change can happen in educational policy, yes, teachers can be at the forefront of that, to the idea that, and that can be that can scale to every policy area? Or is it restricted to certain things and certain topics? And I don't have an answer to that, but I think it's a fascinating um, thread to follow.
0: This scalability idea kind of like leads me into my next question, which was, you know, interwoven with this in the sense that a general theme of the book is that teachers have historically not envisioned themselves as able to affect significant policy changes outside of certain geographies, whether that be their like local school or their district, um, and that they are in some ways generally excluded from the settings where policy is discussed and made, even if they are like at the forefront of its implementation. And in your response to the previous question, you both uh, centered centered the COVID crisis as kind of this unprecedented situation that probably more by necessity than choice put teachers in a place to ch- you know shape how policies were being affected and implemented in the classroom. And my kind of like last question directly related to the book was: uh, Are there you know we see lots of different professions and identities and and groups in our society excluded from the settings where policy that affects them is made and discussed and we've highlighted that unprecedented global health crises can be one such thing that opens these doors or kind of illuminates to certain groups of people their power to affect change through certain types of actions. But I was wondering if there, you know, just as a kind of final thought in this way, if there are other things that we can do as professionals at different levels and in different settings of certain institutions to change these circumstances specifically for pre-service or, you know, like the teachers who are supervising pre-service teachers?
1: I think the question of... Uh, growth areas within teacher education for uh, bolstering professional learning around advocacy is a really important question to continue to ask. And there are a number of folks in the field who are asking these questions and exploring them. Um, And it's, it's great proof of concept because what we're learning is that teacher educators and folks who research in teacher education bump up against, for example, the fact that perhaps they, when they were in teacher education, did not receive a lot of professional development around advocacy. And now to be in the position where you are teaching those courses, where you are ostensibly supporting your uh, teacher candidates towards advocacy in the field, you know, we kind of see um, the ways in which this, this knowledge and this training and the apprenticeship is really sorely needed. Um, and it's an area of promise in research and also research to practice partnership, because it can't just be happening in teacher education. It can't just be happening in educational research or in policymaking. And it certainly can't be happening in the way that it is sometimes, unfortunately, framed, which is, well, teachers need to do X. Um, it's obviously multifactorial and the and the shared responsibility model, I think, is one that Annalie and I are really trying to uh, support in this book. Um, we we frame it in terms of what can you do in your area of decision making power? And that's, I think, where I would I would really want to emphasize that we each those of us who are invested in this each have things that we can do um, in our in our contexts, that can create space um, and structural change towards teacher policy advocacy.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, as you as you said, Alex, the the mindset and the identity of teachers have to shift towards them believing and knowing that they are policymakers, they're policy experts, and we want them to think of themselves as policy advocates, and that there's lots of different ways that that can look, you know, and that's not <clears throat> just showing up and lobbying. It might be, but there's many, many, many other like paths in advocacy. Um, and then as, as May saying that that's, that's not enough. I mean, the, the, it's a core piece is a teacher's own sense of self-efficacy and sense of identity and mindset towards policy is one thing. But then, as you said, like all these other, what we call the high leverage spaces <clears throat> in research, policy, teacher education, um, school level, district level, state level decision making. And I think one of the things that I struggle with is like, what does it look like to make space in policymaking spaces that isn't tokenizing? Because there's plenty of, you know, there's plenty of uh, examples of one teacher being on a committee at the state level to think about X, Y, Z policy. But like, that's not really, that's not what we're talking about you know that's 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 tokenizing um and i think changing not only the mindsets of teachers of themselves towards policy but changing the mindset of what do we think of as valid research for example like is it valid research of teacher voices if you're doing research around and with and and on K12 teachers or K12 schools in general and you're not actually actively engaging teachers in how you ask the questions or the collection of the data in the first place like what is you know how does that impact the potential validity of it and then the validity and the effectiveness of policy. Like for us to have an expectation as a constituent, as a parent of kids in a school district, as whatever, that unless teachers were involved in the design of the written policy, then I'm gonna question its promise. And that like that's an expectation I should have as a parent or a researcher or a taxpayer or like whatever hat you want um you know you want us to to be drawing on so i think it's and i think what i struggle with is like that seems real squishy it's just for us to keep thinking about mindsets and you know uh an identity and like i want something much more tangible to be like this is how you're going to make sure that teacher voice is involved the last just last thing i'll say too is i think teachers getting into a habit of policy advocacy that's part of the scalability thing is that like If they get comfortable and they're in the habit on a local level, they might be more likely to then transfer that to other levels. And I think there's an interesting context here of of the role of unions um, and that obviously that's really different between Massachusetts and Wisconsin. Um, It's state by state really different. And then how that plays out on the local level and that unions historically have been a place where at least there was a skill set being built up with teachers around how do you engage in certain types of policy advocacy not all types um that in the case of wisconsin for example um that about 10 years ago like the union structure was kind of dramatically changed by some state level policy um there's interesting conversations that teachers have around like what has that done for the capacity not only of teachers to think of themselves or even be able to do policy advocacy but then the spaces at the school board level or spaces at the state level, when there isn't this like very highly organized teacher organization in a union to create those spaces.
0: There's a lot of levels and layers to the advocacy and it's like daunting just in this conversation, thinking about them uh, and the, the different uh, obstacles that they could pose between the school district level to, or, you know, the school, to the district, to the state level. Um, but I really, I'll take this opportunity to reemphasize how much I appreciated this book as somebody who across the last couple of years has taken an increasing interest in trying to understand how the rules that shape kind of the experiences of the classroom are made. Um, this just shined a lot of light on different opportunities to kind of, help lead other people and get other people around me similarly interested in and similarly kind of organized towards those ends. Uh, I think at least in, in my discipline of history and my kind of graduate setting and environment, it can be sometimes hard to get people to think about these, these specific issues. So um, as a parting you know, parting ways type of question. I just wanted to extend an opportunity for you to comment on any current work or next directions, anything related to these topics.
2: One of the things that we're looking at is we really have to do this together, right? This has to be collective and teachers have to do it together, but teachers have to do it with families and teachers need to do it with students and young people. Teachers need to like, it needs to be coalition building work too, Um, And so one of the things that we're really excited and thinking about moving into is what does it look like to not only build up the identity and the sense of self-efficacy, but then actually like literally the community organizing skills um, of teachers and the coalition building skills. And what does it look like to be doing this work with families or with young people? And then does that impact? the type of work, does that impact like how they do it? And then does that ultimately, does that impact the policy? Like, is that, I mean, we've seen examples of that, whether it's Chicago or like where those coalitions between parents and teachers were why the policy, you know, was impacted the way it was.
1: Yes, I think that's right. And one part of that work that Annalie just described that I'm really excited about is continuing to push ourselves as researchers to hold ourselves to account and making sure that our findings um, are in that loop with practitioners and other partners. Um, So avoiding being siloed and siloing ourselves uh, I think is an ongoing growth area for us. And we're excited to partner with people. We're excited to think about different ways to get research findings out there, to continue to learn so that um, we can really uh, you know, create coalitions that are going to be effective in, in bringing about institutional change. Um, I think that's, that's a next step And probably ongoing work uh, for the future.
0: Well, thank you. I look forward to following both of these or one or both or all of the above uh, future research and work on this specific and related topics. Um, Thank you one last time, both uh, Dr. Good and Dr. Hara for taking the time to talk with me today about this really important and interesting book.
2: Thank you. It was great to talk. Thanks for the opportunity, yes.